Hello, one and all, and welcome back to the Northern Agenda podcast, a weekly look at politics in the North and the people behind the stories you might not hear about in the national media. I'm Rob Parsons, a journalist based in Leeds, writing about Northern politics. I do a daily newsletter called The Northern Agenda, and this podcast is a chance to dig deeper into the issues that matter to people outside the Westminster bubble. So if you're wanting to hear the latest moralising about BBC presenters, this probably isn't the podcast for you, but I can promise you a chance to hear from the main contenders in the by-election on Rishi Sunak's doorstep in North Yorkshire that could deal the Prime Minister a hugely damaging blow next week. Voters go to the polls in Selby and Aitsty in just a few days' time, and despite the Tories' 20,000 majority, it looks like being too close to call. But first, let's take a look some of the stories that have been making the news this week. And I'm delighted to be joined again by Henry Murison of the Northern Powerhouse Partnership. Henry, welcome. Hi, Rob. Lovely to join you. Lovely to have you from uh, sunny Ilkley. Looks like the sun is shining where you are, which is great. So we're going to be hearing later a little report that I put together from Selby and Ainsty, where because of their terrible position in the polls, the Tories are in a real battle to keep what had been considered a safe seat. And I guess people who are observing this from afar, maybe tempted to generalise about the result, are going to be reading the runes of whatever happens and maybe make sweeping predictions about how Keir Starmer is going to do in terms of winning back those sort of northern seats that Labour lost in 2019. Is that a reasonable thing to do, do you think? Or should we be a bit cautious about how we interpret this result, whatever, whatever it ends up being? I mean, Selby and Ainsty is many things, but it definitely isn't Redwall. You have got traditional working class communities in Selby and in Tadcaster. And that was obviously the bedrock of when John Grogan was the MP. So many people remember that Selby and Ainsty, before it was Selby and Ainsty, was a marginal seat uh, before the boundary changes. And in those days, obviously, it was a kind of a job of turning out those more traditional labour areas versus the parts of the constituency that were less favourable. Now, nowadays, the seat stretches basically into kind of golden triangle of commuter belt between Leeds, York and Harrogate, uh, famous for house price increases rather than anything political. But there is a political implication of that, right, which is that there are some very prosperous parts of the country covered by this constituency, um, which resemble the South much more than they do the North. So it's very interesting to me that the seat is as competitive as it is, because it shows probably that Conservative MPs in the north of England are vulnerable wherever they are, not just those with smaller majorities, um, partly because it's very unclear at the moment whether the current government has managed to land any of its five kind of key kind of promised commitments, whether they're going to be delivered. And that alongside some of the wider economic pain that's coming and cross living crisis now with increasing mortgage rates. I think a lot of seats are in play that probably people didn't think would be. Um, now, I think in a general election, clearly the boundaries will have also changed. So the advantage here to the Labour Party is if they can win it on the current boundaries, they've got a very good chance of holding it uh, because the, the new boundaries are more favourable. There's also some dynamics here which are, are very much about local politics as well as kind of regional economic issues. So you've got the Drax power station that missed out on the connection to carbon capture and storage just a few months ago. Uh, when Teesside and uh, the Northwest were favoured and the Humber missed out. That's an economic issue because that's £15 billion of investment. The government need to find another mechanism and get a pipe built so that uh, there's a long-term future for the power station at Selby. Well, 
for the by-election, it's a local political issue. And that's why there's been hustings uh, at the social club there. It's why uh, many of the workers will be asking questions about the future for their industry. And what was quite a dry policy issue that you and I, Rob, would would obviously find thrilling to discuss uh, is now very much going to be at the forefront of local politics and have an impact on this result. So I think there's some national issues playing out. There's a bit of kind of the Conservatives having to really worry about their rear flank because of the fact that that the economic and, and kind of political realities of the current climate are really challenging for them. And then there's some specific policy stuff that a few hundred votes of workers at that factory at, at the power station alone, the supply chain, uh, and the, the businesses that depend on the power station, that could be enough to swing the result. Uh, and that, I think, will be concerning the local uh, Conservative candidate there uh, who's come into the seat to fight it, obviously hoping that she's going to win a a safe Tory seat, but it is absolutely, as you say, not beyond the realms of possibility that Labour could just nick this result. Again, I don't think it'll be by a very big margin, but it's perfectly possible. Absolutely. And we'll be hearing a bit more from uh, Claire Holmes and Keir Mayfer, the two main candidates, a bit later. Now, the next thing I wanted to talk about was the, the trains, which is something we always keep coming back to on this podcast, don't we? But I think it's reasonable in this instance, because it's one of the one of the big promises Boris Johnson made to the North when he became prime minister, was transforming the region's rail links. People remember that big speech he gave in Manchester. Instead, what we got in the 2021 integrated rail plan was broken promises on a new high-speed rail line across the Pennines. And since then, a lot of uncertainty about improvements for places that are in dire need of new infrastructure. So to bring readers up to date, last year, the Commons Transport Select Committee of uh, of MPs, led by uh, a Conservative, called Hugh Merriman, issued a quite a critical report saying the government really should be looking again at its integrated rail plan and that it risked being a missed opportunity for the levelling up agenda. Fast forward a year, Hugh Merriman is now the minister in charge of the railways, responding to a report that he helped write. That's how long it's taken for the government to respond to this report. And it, it looks like there are some areas where the government might be willing to change track, if you excuse the pun. Um, I mean, you, you, you're a keen observer of, of these things. What were the standout points for you from the government, what the government's been saying this week? I think, I mean, there's a lot of uncertainty still. And I mean, the, the full details of the review between, in terms of how we get HS2 trains to Leeds, still lots of that detail we haven't, haven't yet seen or, or is still dripping out. I think what is notable is the change of tack on Bradford. It's been sort of rumoured for several months now that Hugh Merriman was very keen to unpick those bits of the integrated rail plan. Of course, there is the slightly kind of yes minister scenario of him having written to himself and needing to reply. But luckily, there is a new chair there, so he doesn't actually have to write the letter back to himself. But the kind of Hugh Merriman exchange of letters has now come to an end. And I think that it is good news for Bradford. You've got to think that the decision-making around excluding Bradford from Northern Powerhouse Rail is probably really questionable based on what Hugh Merriman has said. Uh, and it, the detail of his response, it doesn't give any guarantees about a new station for Bradford, but what it does is it removes the fact that that was essentially ruled out uh, from the integrated rail plan perspective, which was always a necessary thing to do. The IRP was largely based on Treasury civil servants picking the things that had the most financial certainty and funding those and fu- not funding anything where there wasn't a, a solid number. Now, clearly, that's a pretty unrobust way of prioritising infrastructure upgrades. Um, and it reflects the fact that anything that was a bit more optimistic in terms of trying to push a bit further wasn't really even considered. Um, But there are some things that that haven't been addressed. So Hull is still left off the Northern Powerhouse Rail Network. 
I think that is really problematic and it causes lots of issues when you start to timetable a service for Northern Powerhouse Rail because where are you going to send all the trains? There isn't enough space for all these trains that are going to come. If we do indeed get the new tunnel we've been promised at least as far as Marsden uh, via a new line that also will, will cover Manchester Airport, when these trains pop out at Leeds Station, they can't, they can't all go to Newcastle. There's just not enough capacity for them. So what is interesting to me is when are we going to get an answer to some of those questions? Because what definitely has come out of, of this week is an acceptance by the government that the way the integrated rail plan was done, largely at the Treasury's insistence, that the, the thinking doesn't add up. And I know a lot of other journalists who've looked at it, other than yourself, Rob, are coming to a similar view, which is that, yes, this is a positive development for Bradford. Uh, and there is definitely a viable way to get trains, for example, from Manchester via Huddersfield, uh, via a new line to Bradford. Those things should be looked at, in my opinion, um, and that, I'm glad they will be looked at. But there's also then the dimension about what an incoming Labour government would do. They've promised a lot more on Northern Powerhouse Rail than the integrated rail plan does. It'll be interesting to see whether some of this technical work, which is now going to happen for the next year, might actually help an incoming Labour government to push on with their plans. So there's a number of kind of nuances to this, which is that as we approach a general election, it doesn't just matter what the current government says it wants. It also matters what the opposition wants and what's the common ground and where is one going to push harder than the other. And I think in that in that kind of scenario, the business community will very much be working to influence both parties. And uh, I know in, in September, when we come forward with some more of our suggestions to the political parties about what should be in their manifestos, clear commitments on Northern Powers Rail and HS2 are going to be on that list. Let's look at a very different story, namely the challenges that our national and local political leaders are having in trying to hit net zero targets, but also, you know, keep take the population with them and, you know, do things in a democratic manner. Listeners to this podcast will know that places like Teesside and the Northwest are leading the way in the deployment of hydrogen as a low carbon potential energy source because it burns without releasing any harmful pollutants. And one possible promising application for that is using hydrogen in our homes for heating and cooking instead of natural gas. So there are two possible sites, Redka in Teesside and Ellesmere Port in Cheshire, both been trying to become the first hydrogen village where this idea is tested in 2000 homes. But it seems that in both areas, there's a pretty substantial opposition to the idea. And now the Ellesmere Port project isn't going ahead because of a lack of local support. How are we ever going to test things like whether hydrogen can be used to heat our homes in a way that isn't sort of imposed on unwilling residents? I guess putting myself in their shoes, I'm not sure how happy I would be in someone coming in and just turning my natural gas supply to hydrogen without really knowing what the result of that would be. So I guess you can kind of understand people's reticence, can't you? Yeah, no, and and we've taken an active interest in this, right? Because the, the opportunities are significant as long as it's not clear yet how we're going to make and deploy enough heat pumps. The question has been asked about whether hydrogen, uh, not just in blend form, and there are already houses down up in Gateshead that have got it blended. And I've been to see there is a there is a couple of properties there that have been built with kind of hydrogen appliances that you can go and look at. I think the challenge for the the companies that distribute our gas who are seeking to pursue this technology is that they've not yet done a particularly good job of convincing their existing customers in these places that this is the right thing to do to test this technology. They've not come up with a way of doing it that is necessarily uh, considered by those residents to be attractive enough to get them to sign up to it. Um, I think the 
the challenge, and I, I've been open-minded about whether or not hydrogen could play a role in domestic heat. I think it's becoming clearer and clearer that it's becoming less likely it will have a role. Um, because if we can get our act together on heat pumps, it, it won't be as necessary. Um, and there are lots of disadvantages uh, to seeking to use hydrogen homes, not least because you do have to to put in you do have to put in new boilers still. So it's not necessarily uh, going to be that easy to do. Even uh, and, and maybe in, in some homes it, it could be considered to be the simple solution. But I I just think the evidence isn't quite there. And, and and there were some great ideas dating back to the original projects being considered for Leeds about what this could deliver. But over time, the the likelihood of, of that being the future for hydrogen has become less likely, but its role in industrial decarbonisation in places uh, like the Humber in helping to uh, protect jobs in our key industries, the role it could play, for example, in uh, in the rail industry on lines where it isn't currently being possible to electrify them, but we want to stop using diesel trains. I think uh, there has been some good work done there. So I, I think as, as much as I was open-minded, I have to say, on on the role that this could play in the decarbonisation of heat, I think if there is a role for hydrogen, it's not clear it will be in households. And so I think whether these trials happen or not, I think the, the likelihood of any large-scale adoption of hydrogen uh, for heating is becoming less and less likely. And, and I think that the regardless of what those consumer trials show, I just don't think the evidence is there to justify pursuing it actively at the moment, unless something very dramatically happens around the cost of hydrogen at the moment. It's going to prove very difficult with all the other people who need and want to get access to hydrogen and the cost for producing it currently. Um, now in 30, 40 years, maybe, when we've had years and years of small modular reactors right across the north churning out hydrogen in huge quantities, maybe the commercial realities might be different. But at the moment, it's very hard to see how this could be done in a cost-effective way when you compare it to to something like the heat pump solution or district heating, which in in many larger cities is is, is possible. So not everyone will have to have a heat pump in some places. Uh, district heating might be a more efficient solution. Now, let's finish with a bit of economic good news on the face of it, namely the announcement of the first of the UK's uh, investment zones. Now, for people who can't remember what those are, uh, under the disastrous Premiership of Liz Truss, uh, her Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng laid out plans to heavily reduce taxes on businesses and relax planning rules in at least 38 local authorities, which were dubbed investment zones. That idea, like the Trust Premiership itself, sadly only had the shelf life of a lettuce and was quickly scrapped before being reborn in a different form, thanks to Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor, and levelling up Secretary Michael Gove. It's been scaled down. There will be just 12 of these zones now. They'll have specific tax and regulatory rules to drive growth and are going to be focused around universities in priority sectors like digital, life sciences, creative industries. And the first one is being uh, unveiled today as this podcast goes out Friday by the Chancellor. It will be in South Yorkshire, focused on advanced manufacturing. The government confidently predicts that Sheffield, Rotherham, Doncaster and Barnsley could benefit from 8,000 new jobs, uh, more than a billion pounds of private funding by 2030 with the help of this new status. And the likes of Boeing have uh, partnered to support more than £80 million worth of government investment. So South Yorkshire is one of those regions like the North East, I suppose, which has underperformed economically in recent years, 
uh, as its traditional industries have sort of faded faded away. Is this? Do you think this is the answer to turning them around, or is it just another putting another sort of shiny badge on something that's maybe not going to not going to work? I mean, I think investment zones in isolation. I mean, it's eighty million pounds of additional funding that come with it are limited in their their, their value. If it's part of a wider industrial strategy pursued by a mayor with a clear set of economic priorities, then they are worth having. And I think the way Oliver Coppard and the various local leaders, the new leader of Sheffield, for example, apologies for the, the train noise in the background, uh, the leader of, uh, of Rotherham, for example, in the case of the, uh, the Advanced Manufacturing Park, their organisations have had a long-standing commitment to develop that forward to support the AMRC which actually predates mayoral devolution. But Dan Jarvis was a huge supporter when he was mayor of uh, the opportunities for manufacturing. This uh, investment by Boeing and the opportunity uh, to do significant new work at the AMRC that will create jobs in manufacturing in South Yorkshire, but also across the wider north, that's a really positive thing. But we also have to remember that in at Sheffield, with all the work that's being done by uh, institutions like Gritstone, the fund set up by Sheffield, Leeds and Manchester, there are actually lots of businesses spinning out, not just in manufacturing, actually, from the University of Sheffield. So I'm really positive about the opportunities in Sheffield as a city and in wider South Yorkshire. I think the investment zone is taking advantage of some significant opportunities in aerospace that needed to happen anyway. Um, and so rather than this being a policy sort of uh, giving away sort of freebies to people wanting to create probably relatively low-paid jobs and displace activity around the country, which was what the original quasi Quarteng plan would have probably done. And the, 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 the limitations of that are obvious. I actually think the way in which the government is implementing these investment zones in the context of the devolution model is absolutely defensible, and it isn't about displacing jobs. So those aerospace opportunities are new opportunities in the aerospace sector that don't exist today. Uh, Boeing have a huge supply chain in the UK already, stretching uh, to as far afield as, as, as nearby Shipley, uh, to Projimax, where I've been, lots of SMEs uh, involved in making parts for, for Boeing's airplanes, uh, as well as the factory Boeing themselves have in Sheffield uh, on the Advanced Manufacturing Park. So I'm really enthusiastic about this opportunity. I think it's an ex- excellent use of the policy, and I'm sure other councils and combined authorities who are preparing their plans at the moment will come up with similarly sensible proposals um, that are not about lowest common denominator, but are, as we've recommended previously, about driving FDI, as we recommended in our report on foreign direct investment last year. And as we've also called for, are absolutely pursuing high-skilled, high-growth opportunities rather than simply using tax breaks to encourage the wrong types of economic activity um, that aren't necessarily going to bring sustainable increases in productivity. So I'm really positive about it. And I think the the mayor and fellow council leaders have have done a good job with the opportunity that's been presented to them. Lots to be excited about. Henry, thank you so much. Thanks, Rob. Now, it didn't register much on people's radars at the time, but at the last general election in 2019, as Labour's red wall was crumbling across the north, there was a much more routine victory for the Conservatives in the safe North Yorkshire seat of Selby and Ainsley. The incumbent MP, Nigel Adams, a staunch ally of Boris Johnson, won the seat for a fourth time with a whopping majority of 20,000, taking 60% of the vote. So it says something about how the fortunes of the main parties have changed since then, that when voters in Selby and Ainsley vote in next week's by-election, there's every chance that Labour could cause a big upset and take the seat. The vote is only happening at all as Nigel Adams dramatically quit Parliament 
and caused a massive headache for Rishi Sunak and the Conservatives after failing to get a peerage in Boris Johnson's resignation honours. It's likely that the race for Mr Johnson's old seat in Uxbridge and South Ryslip, which is also happening next Thursday, will get much of the national media attention. But I really wanted to give Northern Agenda listeners an insight into what's happening in this North Yorkshire seat, which, if Labour were to win, would surely be the clearest sign yet that Keir Starmer could be on course for victory in next year's general election. After a fair amount of cajoling and WhatsApp messages, I managed to secure interviews with the candidates for both the main parties. For Labour, there's Keir Mather, a 25-year-old who was born in Hull and grew up near Selby, whose most recent job was at the Confederation of British Industry. And the Conservatives candidates chosen at the second attempt is Claire Holmes, a barrister and local councillor in the East Riding of Yorkshire. There are 13 candidates in total, representing parties from the Liberal Democrats to the monster-raving loony party. And if you're not familiar with Selby and Ainsty, unlike a lot of so-called red wall seats, it's a very rural area. Driving from one side to the other takes a while. And don't even get me started on how long it would take by bus. There's the town of Selby itself, but also the brewing hotspot of Tadcaster and Sherbourne and Elmet, as well as plenty of much smaller villages. Before meeting the Conservative candidates, I spoke to a few locals in Sherbourne and Elmet, but I also chatted online to the Labour candidates, and I'll play that for you now. You may be wondering why the interview with Claire Holmes is twice as long as that with Keir Mather, and the simple reason is that due to Keir's busy diary, Labour could only give me seven minutes to fire off as many questions as I can manage. So, here he is. One poll out in the last few days has suggested that Labour is 12 points up in Selby and Ainsty, which is pretty remarkable considering you're trying to overhaul a 20,000 vote majority from the last election. Does that seem right to you? Does that seem accurate based on the sort of feedback you're getting on the doorstep? Well, look, obviously, the poll that matters to me the most is the one that we're going to see on polling day. And from my experience knocking on doors across the constituency, this is looking like a really close contest. So we've been out there fighting really hard to earn every single vote. And obviously, overturning a 20,000 vote Conservative majority is no small feat, and it's taking a lot of elbow grease to do. But we really think that we're running a campaign here that's really centred on people's priorities for the local area, whether that's the cost of living crisis, public transport, GP waiting times. So we're really proud to just be out here fighting a very positive campaign and earning the right to be heard in this by-election. And we'll come back to uh, the priorities you set out in a moment. But the fact that it is so close, given that it was previously a 20,000 majority, I mean, is that? do you think that is a reflection of how badly the Conservatives are doing at the moment and, you know, the circumstances of the by-election with Nigel Adams quitting? Or is it an endorsement of you and Labour and, and Keir Starmer? Well, I would say it's a mixture of the two. It speaks to the optimism that people see in the Labour Party and the, the fact that we've got a well-considered kind of pragmatic plan to change people's lives in Selby and Ainsty. But I think as well, there is a lot of frustration, especially with the means under which Nigel Adams departed after not getting his peerage, leaving the constituents of Selby and Ainsty without democratic representation in the middle of the cost of living crisis. And I do speak to people on doorsteps who are lifelong Tory voters who share that concern and that frustration with me and that sense that their vote over the last 13 years really has been taken for granted. And at a time when, you know, there's a lot of scepticism towards politics and a lot of kind of negative feelings. 
feeling. I think that the fact that we've been offering a positive future focus campaign has given people a bit of a breath of fresh air. And there is a mood of change in this constituency that I don't think a lot of uh, pundits would have would have predicted a few weeks ago. You are originally from Hull, I think that's right, and you, you, but you were brought up near to Selby. I mean, what what subjects are you hearing most about on the doorstep? What things are people bringing up most often? Well, the topics that are coming up the most are very similar to the ones that me and my family faced growing up in a rural village. And obviously, the number one concern on people's minds is the cost of living crisis. I mean, post mini budget, food bills in Selby and Ainsley have risen by more by more than six hundred and fifty pounds this year. Twelve thousand three hundred families face upwards of three thousand pounds a year more on their mortgage. People are really, really struggling, and that's not just uh, in Selby itself. It's in the towns and villages across this constituency. So that's number one. But then there are also issues to do with rural life and the Conservatives not fixing those issues that make living in this beautiful part of the country uh, so worthwhile. Uh, And top of top of the mind of voters that I've spoken to are broken local public transport transport networks. So you can't get a bus to where you need to go. If you can get a bus to your GP to get advice, the waiting lists are far too long and you can't get the care you need. Rural crime, which is a national issue that doesn't get enough consideration, in my view, is another massive issue on the doorstep. And also, you know, we're extremely proud to live in one of the most beautiful areas of the country with beautiful green spaces and countryside. But raw sewage has been pumped into our rivers 2000 times this year. And I think that sense of frustration, concern for the future and a desire for a more ambitious and positive alternative is really palpable with the voters that I speak to on the doorstep. You've outlined a five point plan, which is uh, supporting residents through the cost of living crisis, tackling antisocial behaviour and rural crime making the local NHS fit for the future, protecting communities from uh, sewage, as you said, and restoring reliable public transport. But it seems to me that a lot of these things, almost all of them, in fact, are they are within the gift of a national government to change these things, or maybe uh, a North Yorkshire mayor when, when they get elected. Like an individual MP can't do that much, really, to change any of these things. I mean, is it a bit sort of disingenuous to tell voters that if you get me in, I'm going to change all these things, whereas actually it's not in your power specifically to change them, is it? I would disagree. And I think that constituents on the doorstep in this constituency have been without somebody fighting in their corner for far too long. And the difference that a Labour MP can make in holding people to account, whether that's a North Yorkshire Police and Crime Commissioner or this Conservative government, is is really palpable and will make an enormous difference. And just for example, on the cost of living crisis, I've pledged that if elected from day one, I'll be setting up financial support surgeries across this constituency so that people can access the expert help they need to do with their energy bills, their mortgages, or the cost of food. That is the difference from day one, I think, that a Labour MP can make. And it's what local people around here deserve because they've gone on for too long without having an MP who is standing up for them on the national stage shouting and cheering about what we've got to be proud of because there is so much to champion in this constituency, but also getting on with the day-to-day task of facing facing down some of these really, really pressing challenges on which people are desperate for action. I've got to ask you, Kim, about your, your, your age. I guess it's the thing you probably get asked about quite a lot. You, at 25, would be the youngest MP in Parliament, I think, if you were elected. Uh, how, would you, how would you feel about that, going into Westminster as the youngest elected politician there? And would it benefit Westminster do you think, to have a voice of someone in their mid-twenties, in their midst? What would you what would you bring in terms of, you know, being a younger politician? 
Well, as a younger politician, I'd like to approach Westminster in the same way that I've approached this campaign, which is with, you know, energy, determination, a desire to see a fresh start and an ambitious plan that I'm determined to carry through. But you make a really good point that young people in this constituency are struggling to get on the housing ladder, struggling with a lack of economic opportunity, struggling to access public services. I mean, I spoke to one lady last week in Sherbin and Elmet, who was a young person who wanted to work in Selby as a carer, but she couldn't because the last bus home back to Sherbin leaves at 10 past five in the evening. You know, there are so many things holding young people, holding our local economy back. And I think somebody with that drive, with that energy, a fresh perspective and determination is exactly what Selby and Ainsley needs. Kia Mather, thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed. So I'm out in Sherman and Elmet uh, in the Selby constituency. I'm talking to uh, a local resident here. What, what's your name? Stephanie. Um, have you seen much campaigning activity around here with the, with the by-election going on? A little bit. Um, I've seen people door walking as I'm walking around. I've seen a kind of big screen as well. I've had some stuff through the post. So. And what have you made of the candidates? Have any of them made an impression on you at all? No, not massively. I've not spoken to any of them individually. I think um, I definitely have an opinion on who I will and won't vote for. I never, that's broadly based on, I think, the national kind of agenda and government at the time. So would it be fair to say you perhaps are leaning more towards Labour with, with that? I think I am, you know, I think the, the legacy of COVID, the 13 years of Tory government, I think it's left to, it's done so much damage to the economy. When I look back at the Labour government and the years that we had under kind of Blair and the infrastructure, the National Health Service, the education, everything was just a million times better than it is under the Tory government today and we need to change. I mean, it's a Conservative constituency, obviously. I think it's a 20,000 majority. Do you, do you think a lot of people around here are changing their opinion as well? Yes. And I, I think the, the Tory government's done so much damage, I think, to the Conservative Party. I think, and I think people will struggle to see the difference between the Conservatives that are in power today and the local government that's here and the local um, candidates. I think that they won't be able to correlate the difference. People will just be seeing... Boris Johnson, Liz Truss, the damage that's been done, the, the saga of COVID, and, and won't be able to distinguish the two. And so I think it will be a landslide for Labour. And have you voted Conservative before in, in previous elections? Yeah, I voted Labour for a long time. And then I think it got to the point where I felt like we needed a change then from the Labour government. And I think under um, Cameron, I just felt I had more trust in the Conservatives. And I think we then did need to do a little bit more for the economy. So yeah, I voted for the last few years, uh, Tory, yeah, Conservative. And now I'm just, yeah, so so far the other way. So sick of it, I'm definitely voting Labour. Hi, hi Janet. So um, what, uh, what have you made of the by-election campaign so far? Has it, has it sort of registered on your, on your radar? Uh, yes, I've had uh, some correspondence through the door and I had a gentleman this morning from Labour as well, so that I had a chat with. And what did you make of what he had to say? Yeah, it was fine. He was asking me if there was any problems that I could foresee in the village that needed some attention and, and I said that everything seems okay at the moment. So uh, that's interesting. So how how are you thinking of, of voting, if you don't mind me asking? Well I have voted conservative in the past, so um, I'm leaning towards that way, but that could change before. 
what factors are you kind of weighing up when you decide which which way to vote? could be persuaded to change your mind. Yeah, 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 yes, I'll have another look into it before I vote and then... And yeah. Steve, what, what are the big issues in, you know, in Sherbourne and Elmer and in, in Selby, sort of constituency more widely? I just think that there's more development going into like the brownfield areas and lack of infrastructure and services for, for young people especially. youth club you know there's a makeshift one that's working out of the rugby club but that's about it apart from the uniform groups of course and which way are you thinking of voting in the election in the by-election coming up i'll probably go labor interesting thank you very much all right thanks a lot So I'm in a pub in uh, Selby Town Centre, that's a stone throw from the historic Abbey, and I'm talking to Claire Holmes, the Conservative candidate. Claire, hello. Hello. Um, so ca- the uh, campaign is in full swing now, I feel. I mean, how, how is it going from your perspective? Um, it, we're obviously in the final days of the campaign leading up to the 20th of July. We will be continuing to do exactly what we've been doing over the last couple of weeks, getting out speaking to local people, uh, and we're out all day, every day. So hopefully we'll be uh, knocking on somebody's door that's listening to this very soon. Absolutely. And I guess from your point of view, it's uh, perhaps a, you know, the circumstances are relatively challenging as a, a Conservative candidate, given the, the circumstances. What, what's been your message to voters on the campaign trail? Um, my message to voters on the campaign trail has been that the reason that I'm standing to be Member of Parliament in Selby and Ainsdale is because I want to be the Member of Parliament for Selby and Ainsdale, not just I want to be a Member of Parliament. Um, there is nobody that can hit the ground running in this constituency like I can. Um, I've got the mining heritage because I was born and grew up in Castleford. I've got the rural heritage because I've been a councillor with East Ryden and Yorkshire Council. Um, I've dealt with planning. I've dealt with transport and so I understand and have already faced many of the challenges that we have here in Selby and Ainsdale. And how many voters who you speak to are bringing up uh, Nigel Adams and the circumstances in which he quit as an MP? Is it a common thing that's coming up? Um, People have referred to Nigel, um, but when they do so, sometimes it's just to say that they've been in touch with him or that they're aware of something that he's done, or sometimes it's the circumstances. But to be honest, my conversations that I've had with people have been positive conversations about looking forward. What do they want from the person who's going to represent them? And they want the same thing as I want. They want somebody who's going to be deeply rooted in this community, who's going to be very visible, who's going to be very accessible to them, and who's going to be a strong voice for them. And 
I'm interested in what you make of the, the polls. Obviously, there's various polls saying different things, but they either seem to suggest that it's sort of neck and neck quite close or even that you're behind. I mean, how... I don't know what your view is on that and where you think you are in relation to Labour. And also, how, why you think uh, it is that in a constituency where you did have a 20,000 majority, it's now you know, pretty, pretty close? I've got a very clear view on that. There's only one poll that counts, and that's the poll that happens on the 20th of July. Um, I don't think you should ever take somebody's vote for granted, and I never will. Um, And so the the only poll that I'm looking at is the count that's on the 20th of July. But obviously... Yeah, the, the circumstances are quite different from if, if this election had been, uh, you know, in, in 2019, Nigel Adams won with a 20,000 majority. So it, it, it's, how do you account for what's happened since then? Do you think the Conservatives are viewed differently now to how they were four years ago? I think you've got to go with what people tell you on the doorstep. And as I say, my conversations that I've had with people are about their local issues now. They're about what they want from their representative now and going forward. Um, And so obviously you do end up talking about things that have happened in the past. But people really do want to have a strong representative who's interested in this area, who wants to take things forward for them. Um, And that's exactly what I want to do. Now, I know that Labour have been out on the campaign trail today and I think one of their things they've been talking about, their shadow transport secretary, Louise Haig, has been on the buses in Selby and I think she said that it takes four hours to get from one side of the constituency to another. I mean, we were saying before, it's a very big constituency, uh, 25 miles in total or something. But, I mean, how is it that public public transport in this constituency and across the north in general is as bad as it is and what would you do about it in in Selby? Okay so uh, just as an explanation of uh, why there are particular challenges with bus transport obviously numbers of people that use public transport during Covid did fall and it's taken time to recover from that. The government programme that they've had with the capped bus fares of £2 um, will have really helped to get people onto buses. Other things that we can do is encourage people to apply for their concessionary pass. Some people didn't apply for a concessionary pass um, when they could do and I know that that's something that as a councillor I've supported the local council doing, encouraging all those who are applicable for a concessionary pass to get it and to use it. Um, On top of that um, I do recognise that bus transport is incredibly important in rural areas and so as a councillor where where commercial operators have taken a commercial decision that they're going to cut services and that's not a decision that's made by councillors or any local council or any member of parliament where a commercial operator has taken that decision um, the council that I am a councillor upon have had a budget where they've been able to step in and to subsidise those services and I've supported that because I understand the importance of rural transport for people for getting to work, getting to school getting to healthcare Um, and so it's it's about ensuring that that system is there for people to use that they feel confident in using it that it's affordable for them to use Um, and the more that we increase numbers the more and more services that you can add now I was talking to a chap in Sherburn and Elmert a little earlier and, and he was saying that you know in his uh, where he lives there's not a lot for local kids to do and I asked him do kids who grow up in this area tend to move away to Leeds or to York and he said a lot of them did I mean 
is that the reality for an area like Selby and Ainsty that, that ch- kids are going to move away to, for, for better opportunities or do you think there is an opportunity to keep them in the local area and and, and you know have, have them still here well I, I'm really grateful that you've asked me that question because that is the whole reason of why I want to be member of parliament for this area I'm a mum um, and I want my children to have the choice of whether they continue to live at home with me or whether they have to move away for better opportunities. That is exactly why I want to be a Member of Parliament for Selby and Ainsty. I don't want anybody to feel that they've got to move away for better opportunities. I want to be a strong voice for this area to bring those opportunities here so that anybody, whether they are children or adults, um, have the very best of opportunities. And how, how do you go about doing that? Well, you, you do that in two ways. One, by going down to Westminster and having a big loud voice. And as a barrister, I don't have a problem with that. Um, the other way is by being in touch with your local community, having that very strong links with them so that you understand what the needs are of the people that you represent, uh, and then being able to... Um, campaign for that to bring in that added investment so as you've indicated one of the things that's really important for bringing people and jobs to this area is good infrastructure we've just had 22 million pounds for the railway station that's going to do exactly that it's that type of work that i want to push further to bring more type of investment like that into this area improve those transport links more more jobs um, and more visitors now i wanted to just mention that there was a, a piece in the yorkshire post this week which was about uh housing and building on the green belt and i think the gist of it was that you you, are a councillor in the the east riding and you helped put together the local plan which committed to thousands of homes some of which would be built on greenfield land or 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 green green spaces and you as part of this campaign are saying you will protect green space in selby and entity how do you how do you square those those two things well the, the local plan is something which is put together with extensive consultation with local people and it does not necessarily follow that an area that's allocated for development in that plan will be built on if somebody wants to they still have to apply for planning permission and at that stage local people would again be able to comment on that application and that evidence would be considered and so I think it's important to understand what a local plan is and um, I've read the comment uh, of um, uh, Mr. Mather uh, uh, and what he thinks about that. He's entitled to his opinion. He's wrong, and actually, his opinion betrays the fact that he does not really properly understand the planning system, and he does not foresee the danger in the top-down targets that Labour are proposing. So, under a system where you've got top-down targets, which is what they're proposing, you will end up with developers saying I want to build on this field you don't have enough houses uh, yet you've got to meet this target I'm going to build in that field and even if local people don't want it even if local councillors don't want it they'll get planning permission to build on it and people will end up with green spaces being concreted over that they don't want to be concreted over and so the work that I did in putting together the local plan was doing exactly what I've said is important here it's not that people are saying they don't want anything to build any They're saying they want it to be built in appropriate places. They're saying that local people are the best people to make those decisions and to inform those decisions. And that's what I agree with. Um, So it's by getting people to feed into that local plan that you are giving local people that voice. 
Because obviously the danger in the opposite direction, I guess some people might argue, is if you don't have a top-down system and you leave it up to local people to decide, you, you get a lot of people not wanting housing in their local area and then nothing gets built. And then for an area that it's hoping to attract and keep younger people, that's potentially damaging, isn't it? So I guess you've got to strike a, strike a balance. Politics is all about balancing competing interests. And that's why I say the best way to do that is the way that this Conservative government say is the way to do that which is to allow decisions to be made by local people and to be informed by local people because they know their home best. Um, and that's why, as part of that process for the local plan, um, there was a extensive consultation with local people so that it was informed by them, it was led by them, not something imposed upon them. You mentioned Keir Maver, your opponent. Obviously, he's... Uh, a young man in his mid twenties. He's a relatively unknown quantity. I mean, what do what do you think of him as a as a, a an opponent in this election? I, I don't know him. What I would say is, um, I am forty four. Um, I have lived life. Uh, I don't think it's necessary that somebody is a mum, but I am a mum, and that is something that I bring to my role as somebody with life experience. Um, I'm also a wife, I'm also a daughter, I've worked, I've done the school run, um, I've um, you know run a household, I've run a business. All those different types of life experience, I think, are what you need in politics. Politics is not about the political games that people play in Westminster. When people are representing their constituents, they ought to think all the time about how the decisions that they're making are going to impact on the people's lives that they represent and to understand how the decisions that you make impact on life you've got to have lived it and so I wouldn't want to say anything derogatory about Mr Mather what I would say is I in my 44 years have accrued a great deal of life experience and a good track record and that's why I think I would be a good representative for this area. And the final question about the the other Keir, Sir Keir Starmer who was uh, up in Selby uh, a few days ago and I saw that the Tory chairman Greg Hands he posted a video of Keir Starmer arriving on the train and there was a group of Conservative campaigners out to greet him and I think the gist of it was that uh, Sir Keir's a lefty London lawyer and he's the Conservatives' greatest weapon in this election or something along those lines. I mean obviously you're a, a barrister yourself aren't you? So I mean is, is it a bit weird attacking a lawyer uh, someone for being a lawyer? I mean do you think Keir Starmer is actually uh, an electoral sort of disadvantage to Labour in this in, in in, in places like Selby? There's a lot in that question, if I could try and unpick it. So um, the, the picture that you're referring to that uh, you've seen with Greg Hans, Greg Hans was on the train that was arriving at the train station and it just so happened that he was on the same train as Keir Starmer. So that was very much just a moment in time. I, I didn't hear anybody say anything about being a lefty lawyer. It didn't have uh, any feeling to it at the time of being anything other than just a moment that everybody quite enjoyed. Nobody appeared uncomfortable on either side. It was quite a light-hearted way of dealing with that situation of the leader of the Labour Party just walked out of the train station and there's a load of Conservatives stood outside. So that it, it was very much a good-natured moment in time. In terms of the lefty lawyer and me being a barrister, Keir Starmer is a lawyer and he is the leader of the left and so therefore it is factually accurate to say he's a lefty lawyer. Um, 
I think it's important to focus on policies and on what people do. Um, and that's why I've referred to my track record going through this campaign. Claire Holmes, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and it's produced by Daniel J. McCoughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. Also, check out the other laudable podcasts. See you next week. Bye-bye.